This podcast is sponsored by Cloud Optimizer. As a business owner or IT manager, are your cloud investment costs going up and you don't know why? It's time for Cloud Optimizer. As you migrate your business to the cloud, what you're spending and why you're spending it can get a little hazy. But Cloud Optimizer clears up the mystery and puts the cloud to work for you. Cloud Optimizer starts by analyzing usage patterns, right-sizing resources, leveraging discounts you may not be aware of, implementing automation, and much more. And by reducing unnecessary expenses and maximizing performance, Cloud Optimizer guarantees you a savings of five times what you spend for their service. As you utilize cloud-based services more and more, you don't have to lose sight or control of your spend. You can stay agile, streamline your costs, and optimize your performance, plus save significant money with Cloud Optimizer. Make the cloud work for you with Cloud Optimizer. Get a free assessment and find out how much you can save by going to cloudoptimizer.com. Go to cloudoptimizer.com for your free assessment. That's cloudoptimizer.com. One message that I would want any parent of an anxious child to know is that in all of mental health, in all of psychiatry and psychology, there is no problem more treatable than anxiety. This is Death, Sex, and Money. The show from WNYC about the things we think about a lot and need to talk about more. I'm Anna Sale. One in 11 American children and adolescents has an anxiety disorder a number that's been increasing over the last 20 years. We heard about this in our recent call-in series about mental health called Hold On. I have two young kids, and I also hear about this in conversations with other parents, in disrupted family routines, battles over going to school or access to social media. Many of us are questioning how to support our kids through their fears while also pushing them when they need it. I was riffing on some version of that with some neighbors on my deck in Berkeley a few months back. And one of them, Mike Moraski, described growing up in the 70s in Montana. He was not hovered over as a kid, which suited his personality. He's always had a healthy skepticism of authority. He moved to the Bay Area initially with his punk band. And before that, there was skateboarding. I remember literally the first time I stepped on a skateboard, I went down a hill and fell and scraped both my knees and my elbows. And, you know, I mean, it was like a real wipeout, like literally the first time. And then, you know, just jumped up and was like, fuck, yeah, I got to do that again. You know? <laughs> Where were your parents? Um, well, nowhere. I mean, I, I would say nowhere nearby, but they were really supportive, you know, like when they, they would drive us to skateboard contests, which in Montana is not a, you know, small undertaking. It'd yeah. be a long, long, long drive. Um, but that behavior, penchants for risk started way, way younger, you know? Like there was, I'd go jump on my bike and bike away and go wherever for the day and they had no idea where I was. Um, my parents were a little more extreme in that regard in that my dad was a research psychologist. Um huh behavioral psychologist in, at Montana State University and really believed in, what do you call it, like natural consequences, right? Like that sort of learning where you learn by by doing. Uh, interesting. So he had like a, he had a, a intellectual framework for letting you figure stuff out on your own. <laughs> for being a lazy parent. He had an intellectual <laughs> framework 
<laughs> for being a lazy parent. Yes. I remember when we were sitting on my deck and and we were uh, like the sun is setting and my memory of our conversation about the way your teenage years were like we were like talking about skate punk culture you were describing like what it was like to to kind of come of age uh in that scene and you described something a therapist said to you about it do you do you remember what you said yeah as i you know um was kind of describing my upbringing to her and you know and sort of some of the the um kind of uh, contemporary manifestations i guess you know uh, of it she she was like well so it sounds like you're not really afraid of much of anything but you're just never uh, you never feel safe i have always kind of felt like at some point the other shoe was going to drop right like that that uh, something was going to go wrong or um that things weren't gonna work out you know that sort of some some kind of dread yeah and i always just assumed it was you know my punk rock culture uh, just not having zero faith in humanity right like which is <laughs> i think a, a a reasonable a reasonable stance to to take but i had never really kind of tied it to this idea that you know if you're if you're as a child, when you're growing up, and this is how she sort of explained it to me, you know, you're you're po- going to poke at the edges of things. And if you have adults telling you, hey, don't do this, this, you could get hurt. Don't do this other thing. You kind of have this, you know, you learn boundaries without being hurt by them. But if you have adults telling you, you can do anything you want, but you're, it's going to hurt, <laughs> you do learn kind of where the real boundaries are, but through pain and you're going to go, can you go off a 50 foot cliff? Can you go off a 60 foot cliff? Can you go off an 80 foot cliff? What does that feel like? And like, if I go 10 more feet, like at what point is it breaking bones? Afraid of nothing, but also never feeling safe. I've thought back on that a lot, especially as a parent. How do you get that balance right of showing your kids that you're going to protect them while also helping them learn to tolerate discomfort? I mean, truly, it's a question for any intimate relationship. How do you be there for your loved ones when they're in distress and help them solve a problem when you can, but not solve so many that you get in the way of their own growth? In poking around on these sorts of questions, our producer Zoe Azoulay read about a treatment program for kids who suffer from anxiety disorder and OCD developed at Yale University. But this program does not focus on the kids. Instead, it gives clear instructions to the parents. Like Alexis, a mother in New England. She and her husband started getting help when their son was seven and really struggling with anxiety and OCD. He couldn't be alone, even if it meant I was just down the hall with the door shut for three minutes and he was in the living room, that that was too much for him. With the help of a therapist, Alexis and her husband developed a plan to change their parenting patterns incrementally. And it's a pretty formal system. 
You start by writing a letter to your child, explaining what will change. The focus is on what the parents have been doing to try to comfort their child, what the program calls accommodations. For Lexis, it was about not having to be physically next to her son whenever they were home. I would always be like, okay, I'm going right upstairs. I'm just switching the load of laundry. I'll be right back. Okay, I'm just going to run to the bathroom. I'll be literally so he knew where I was every minute of the day. Can you describe for me the scene of when you wrote your first letter to tell your son that some things were going to change in your household? What was that like? How did you do that? So so we wrote the letter, and it wasn't even the drafting of the letter that was too difficult. My husband and I sat in the office and um, kind of drafted it out. By longhand or on a computer? On How the computer, because um, uh-huh. we knew we would print it and then read it to him and give it to him. Um, we got through the reading okay, but he was visibly upset and crying, and he shredded it immediately. And then, and this was the accommodation that, you know, we know it's hard for you to be away from mom and dad, but, you know, when you come into the bathroom, we are not going to respond to you until we're done. And then we'll be happy to, you know, to respond to anything you need after we're done in the bathroom. Um, he, I think he cried for a good, like three hours that night. Um, and had a very strong response to the announcement and said things like, I wish I was never born. I wish I was dead. Then we didn't have to do this. Had he said things like that before? No. So that was so hard as a mom, um, cause that's mm-hmm. your baby. And, um, was concerning enough that we contacted, um, the therapist about, you know, is this okay? And she basically reiterated that this is exactly why we're doing this therapy because he's having such a strong response to what is a really a minor change. This program was developed at Yale by Dr. Ellie Leibowitz, which he describes in a book called Breaking Free of Child Anxiety and OCD, a scientifically proven program for parents. I found this book very readable and useful as a parenting guide in general to help me reflect on what distress feels like for a child and how my reactions as a parent shape that. After all, Dr. Leibowitz says childhood anxiety is best understood as a relational process. Children, by nature, don't respond just with their own fight-or-flight response, and that's in large part because we're born not really able to do that. I mean, if you start from infancy... What can they do? They can cry. That's the main thing they can do. And that crying will alert their parent, their caregiver, that they need help. And that tendency to look to your parent for help in coping with something that is triggering your fear or anxiety or, you know, your distress, that remains throughout childhood, even as we gradually develop more independent coping abilities. So the first thing I want parents to understand is just that they are an integral part of how anxiety works in a child. And if you're a kid and what you're growing up learning about yourself through your parents is, I can't handle anxiety, well, you're going to have a lot of anxiety in your life, and you're going to feel vulnerable to it, and it's going to be more impairing to you. Because 
that feeling of I can't handle anxiety is what drives most of the impairment in anxiety disorders. Dr. Leibowitz says accommodating your child's anxiety is a totally normal parenting response. Researchers see it across cultures, races, and ethnicities. But he says when a child has an anxiety disorder, that adaptive response can backfire. Still, he stresses that parents, for the most part, do not cause anxiety disorders or OCD in their kids. And while parenting styles certainly evolve across generations, he doesn't endorse one way over another. There's something of a pendulum that tends to swing back and forth over generations or decades in parenting styles and attitudes. There's a little bit of a pendulum swing where sometimes, you know, we kind of swing more to the uh, very hovery protective side and maybe other times to the more uh, independent, hands-off kind of approach. And sometimes maybe that pendulum swings a little bit too far before it starts to correct itself. I actually think that you can be a, an excellent parent in many, many ways. If you're a patient of Dr. Leibowitz's or someone in his practice, you're asked to write up a list of accommodations you do for a child and then slowly eliminate them at home and in place use what he calls supportive statements. I think it can be as simple as saying to your child, I get that this is really scary for you and I know that you can handle it. Or I understand that this makes you very uncomfortable and I'm sure that you will be okay. So it doesn't have to be a sophisticated uh, exercise in creative writing. It can be very, very simple, something parents can sort of practice a few times and then just use even, even just sticking with the same sentence. Yeah, they're so simple, but also not ones that are at the tip of my tongue, you know, as mm. a parent. I, I've been, oh, this isn't something you should be scared of. You're strong, like kind of diminishing the fear as a way of trying to be encouraging. I think we hear that a lot. In fact, I would say in stark contrast to a supportive stance of the kind that I was describing, there are two other attitudes that are not what I would call supportive, but that are very common among parents. And one of them is what we call the demanding parent or what you might, what some people might call the suck it up buttercup. <laughs> uh -huh. I'm sometimes her. I'm sometimes an accommodator, and sometimes I'm suck it up, buttercup. Yeah. <laughs> that's, that's actually, I think, one of the things that we see most commonly is either you have two parents, and they kind of split it between them. So you end up with one parent who's, like, really protective and really accommodating, and the other parent who's, like, frustrated and just gnashing their teeth and just uh, so frustrated because they want to, you know, they want to get this message across that you have to suck it up. And um, I think of them as traps. They're, they're, they might mm. be really well-intentioned, but I think of them as traps because they actually get in the way of being more supportive. You know, if you're really protective, well, you might be soothing and re reassuring your child, but you're not communicating that confidence. You're not mm. showing them they can handle things. And if you're really demanding, well, you're not really being supportive, right? Because you're not acknowledging that it's not just a choice to be anxious or not be anxious. Your kid can't just decide that they feel fine and or suddenly act as though they have no anxiety. 
And so it's a trap rather than a really productive or useful stance. And we'll try to help parents to switch away from those protective or demanding attitudes toward a more supportive one. Mm. To speak specifically to accommodation, one of the things I found myself thinking about first when thinking about kind of um, being told to examine where my interventions might be keeping my child from growing in a way that they that they would be helped by. It, mm. it made me think about like early on in parenthood uh, with an infant and thinking about sleep training mm-hmm. and being told to try to help them you know, to try to to have them cry it out at nighttime um, so they could learn to self-soothe and how painful that was mm-hmm. as a parent. Um, do you think that's an apt metaphor? I think, uh, I think it can work as a metaphor, but I think we're trying to do more than just cry it out. Mm-hmm. But cry it out, I, there's parts of that that resonate because part of that is believing that your child will be okay even without you, you know, rescuing them, so to speak, in this moment. But the part that is maybe missing there is that, that, that parental presence, that, that supportive message of, like, I do get it. I do understand mm-hmm. that it's really hard. I don't want a parent just ignoring the fact that their child is really, really anxious. So the metaphor works on some levels, but there's parts that aren't there as well. Mm-hmm. So I understand what you're saying about um, for a child, avoiding circumstances that create anxiety does not diminish anxiety. In fact, it can make it grow. Mm-hmm. Um, it can make, you know, the, 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 the idea of coming across that anxious circumstance again feel, feel like it's certainly something they need to avoid. When you're a parent who is trying to go about uh, your family's routines, and um, along with that comes a certain need for efficiency often, Mm -hmm. um, and avoiding uh, acting out, right? Or avoiding blow-ups, or avoiding what you can anticipate as a parent, a a child's very strong reaction. Say I wanna go to the store and I really need some groceries, and I know if I do it this way, my child's gonna have difficulty. If I do it this way, my child, I'm gonna maneuver around the thing that's gonna give my child difficulty. Um, how do you talk, how do you talk to a parent about those micro choices, like that we all make for our family where we're just trying to get through the day? You know, when I talk about being supportive, at this point, I actually haven't even asked a parent to do anything differently. At step number one for me, I'm just saying, even as you're taking them to the store instead of uh, leaving them home, you could still have them hear that supportive message. Even in the car on the way to the store, you could be saying to them, you know, I get it. It's really scary for you if I go out and you're home without me. I want you to know, I think you're able to handle that kind of feeling. And so you're not even yet doing anything differently, but you're holding up a mirror to your child that says, I believe in your ability. Coming up, how Alexis's son reacted to his parents' change in behavior. We kept trying to reiterate, like, supportive statements. He was pretty much in a place where he wasn't really hearing us. Um, But the fact that we kind of stayed firm with that we were still going to go ahead 
and it, we didn't do all of this for him to then cry for three hours and realize it's too hard. This episode is brought to you by Fail Better, David Duchovny's new podcast with Lemonada Media. On Fail Better, David, who has experienced both low and high-profile failures throughout his life, explores the vast world of failure, how it holds us back, propels us forward, and ultimately shapes our lives. Each week, he will chat with guests like Ben Stiller, Bette Midler, and more about how our perceived failures have actually been our biggest catalysts for growth, revelation, and even healing. Through these conversations, he hopes listeners can learn how to embrace the opportunity of failure and fail better together. Fail Better is out now wherever you get your podcasts. We have had a lot of exciting new things to share with you about the show recently, but this might be some of our biggest news yet. Death, Sex, and Money is officially going to be live in New York City at the Tribeca Festival on June 11th. And I want to personally invite you to the live taping we'll be doing with the legendary journalist Kara Swisher. If you know Kara's work, you know her ability to get people to tell her things is unmatched. And she does it in her signature, hard-charging way. She's not afraid of things getting a little combustible. I have a slightly different interview style, so we're going to talk about that and play around with that in experimental ways that I think will make this a special show unlike any of our other live shows up to this point. And it's not often that I get to do a live Death, Sex, and Money show in New York, so I really hope to see you there. Whether you're in the city, on the East Coast, or just been looking for a reason to visit New York City, come on June 11th for this show. You can get tickets now at TribecaFilm.com slash DeathSexMoney. We are so excited to see you there. This is Death, Sex, and Money from WNYC. I'm Anna Sale. I have to say, after reading Dr. Leibowitz's book, I started thinking about supportive statements in my everyday interactions with my kids when they're resisting doing something uncomfortable or new, and also with my husband when he's had a tough day. It's helped me be intentional about saying two things, both, I understand how you feel, and also, here's why I know you can handle this. And about a week into this, when I asked my four-year-old if I could give her a hand on the monkey bars, she yelled back, no, I can handle this. Of course, for parents of children with anxiety disorders, Dr. Leibowitz's program can be an extreme shakeup, both for the child and for the parents. It was for Alexis. Just watching him struggle so much um, was heartbreaking and hard to then manage the rest of the home when, you know, it's hours of him tantruming. So just spending time with our daughter, making dinner, (laughs) taking care of dogs, like just any daily tasks kind of all came to a halt for a while. Alexis and her husband worked with a therapist to list out all their accommodations. They allowed their son to follow them into every room, to pick and repick out his outfits, to agonize over food choices. They looked it over and decided on the first change they would tell him about in that letter, that they wouldn't let him follow his mom into the bathroom again, and he fell apart. He also had a lot of fear that by doing this, that my husband and I would be different to him. We, I won't know you. You're going to be different because 
you know, we reiterated that like mom and dad are going to do this. That those three hours of crying, what, what were you told to do? Could you be with him? Did you need to, were you told to give him space? What was the guidance there? Yeah. So we were with him. We just stayed near him and let him have, you know, the emotions he was having. Like they talk about like without judgment, like he's, it's okay. He's angry. Um, I tried to regulate our own emotions. I know for myself, like <laughs> um, three hours is a long time for your child to be that distressed and to not to a, not give in and not change the fact that you've set out to do this accommodation because that only makes it conveys to him that he's not strong enough to handle this. And we know that he can, you know, the whole point is giving him that confidence that he can regulate himself and you can manage this. Did you have a new thing that to say to, that would contain both of those things? Like when you were trying to say, I know this is really hard, and also I'm going to try to walk you through that, what what were the things that you said? So um, in terms of like, yeah, supportive statements, he was not a big fan of them. Um, so we, <laughs> like, like not at all. Um, like it sounded like jargon yeah, to him. He was like, like, what is this? Why are you talking like this? This is weird. To this day, he's not a huge fan. Um, when we bring them up, he gets a little bit upset. But it also takes him out of the moment of him when he's so anxious because then he's now mad that we're using a supportive statement. Um, uh-huh. Now he's being sassy <laughs> and making fun of you. Yes. And then we're kind of like, hey, at least like, we, you know, it brought the temperature down a little bit. But it would, yeah, say we know this is hard for you, buddy. We know like it's really hard for you when with change um, and when you don't know what's going to happen, but we know you can do this and mommy and daddy are going to be here for you. And then, you know, repeat it internally to yourself. Like, we can all do this because it's hard. I mean, it's, um, it's hard work. Like you see a spike in, at least we saw a lot of spike in symptoms and anxiety as you're trying to decrease accommodations. And I think, and then, so for parents, I think just knowing that it, you know, it's not going to be the easiest process, but it's so well worth it for, for everybody. When did you get that first sense of, oh, this is shifting something in a positive way? How, how long did it take and what did you notice? It honestly, after, so we did that letter um, on a Sunday night. And I think by like Tuesday or Wednesday, it was a couple days in, my husband and I looked at each other and we were like, he's doing it. <laughs> like he wasn't bringing it up anymore, but he also wasn't, he wasn't even coming into the bathroom. And it, it, we were like, it's like, you almost are so nervous to be like, it's working. <laughs> you want to mm-hmm. like whisper it. Um, but I honestly don't think I'd like peed alone in, you know, seven years. So eight years. So I was like, oh my gosh. <laughs> oh, uh, I hope you like got a nice bathroom candle and just like lit it from time to time for 30 seconds of quiet. Right? Just to appreciate it. <laughs> it's, ha- it's happening. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> the next accommodation Alexis and her husband decided to tackle was about their son's clothes. Alexis's son had become obsessive about what he was going to wear to school, painstakingly going over his outfits and needing to put on the clothes in a specific order. Alexis had found herself doing loads of laundry in the morning just to make sure the right choices were available. The new letter said they wouldn't do that anymore, and they would spend just five minutes the night before choosing clothes. He took it better, again, 
cried, um, shredded the, the announcement. Um, oh, he did it again. He did it again. <laughs> I, I'm, yeah, I, like, he, I don't think he kept one, but at, at the end, it just started throwing them in the garbage and it was far less dramatic. So, um, yeah, we tackled his clothes, which is still, again, working to this day. We still, he still can have, you know, meltdowns over the fact that, you know, he's gone to wear something specific and the weather isn't going to be appropriate, but they're far less frequent and intense and they don't ruin his day. Like it used to just be like, I hate this day. It's the worst. And it would just sort of like set this negative tone for the rest of the day for him. As you're making the list of things, you know, uh, in, in every household where there are two parents, um, kids respond to each parent in a particular way. Mm -hmm. Um, Was there ever a moment where, as the mom, like where you felt kind of like looking at the list of accommodations and who your son looked to for comfort, that it kind of felt like, did you ever feel like defensive or guilty that a lot of it was, a lot of this was directed at you? So much, so much guilt. Um, Yeah, I think I... Again, I think because I'm his primary caregiver, um, I felt really responsible for a lot of the accommodations um, because so many of them were obviously going to directly affect my, like his anxiety, but also my ability to like parent in our home um, and get through the day. And I, and I think it just makes you reflect, at least for me, it made me reflect on so many things from, you know, from him, his infancy onward of just, oh gosh, I feel like maybe when he was this age, I shouldn't have done this. Or, you know, when he was this, like, what if we had tried that? Or, um, I think it's easy to beat yourself up. So I, for myself, it was a lot to just unpack. Um, and then I think... I felt like a lot, you are on eggshells all day and I feel like you don't have a lot of time to process anything um, yeah. because it's just, you're just waiting for the next like pin to drop. And you spend all day making sure like you eliminate all the triggers or, and then of course something happens that you didn't expect to be a trigger and you start all over again. Um, that going through it and seeing him do so well, which is just, I mean, it was just amazing, but it also gave you some time and some space to go, oh, wow, like things were really bad or um, I wish we would have done this sooner. Mm. Um, I think then all of a sudden I had space in my head and, and, and my life to, to really reflect on parenting. I mean, I think, um, you know, uh, I, I think... When you're when you're in that moment of like manage the chaos kind of and keep it from spinning out of control, like your your throat, it, like there's some kind of a block in your throat, and you're sort of like um, parenting from a sort of like just trying to keep everything contained um, and rolling along. And what how I experience that sometimes is like I'll, like I'll, my head will hit the pillow and the kids will finally be asleep, and I'll be like, oh, I didn't like take a minute to just like, I don't know, look at them with loving eyes because I was trying to like make sure they were going to like, you know, be in bed and have their PJs on and their teeth brushed, you know. 
Um, so I totally understand that. And I can, and what I hear you saying is like, and it was compounded by, um, you know, when things went awry, your son was in real, real distress, like deep distress. And you were trying to, to make him feel comforted. Yes, that's exactly what you're describing. You just, yeah, you, and you do, you like, by the time it's all said and done, you, I think I hit a point midway through therapy where I thought, I don't, I hadn't been enjoying him. Um, in a way mm. that I, it kind of hit me like a ton of bricks. And then of course, then <laughs> cue the mom guilt. Um, as like he started to improve, it was like he it, like brought my, my boy back. Like he, he, he was laughing more than we were laughing more. He was, um, you know, telling jokes again and, you know, like it, it, yeah, I was about halfway through where I, then we were going to bed and thinking like, I really like, like that was fun today. Or I like really enjoyed sitting and chatting with him and realizing how that had not been a part of our family life. What's it like for you when you can see that there's something that's happening that is upsetting him and you see him responding in a different way where he's not, not looking to you to 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 fix it it i um you almost just feel so overcome like with relief and happiness because mm-hmm. <laughs> i think i had worried for a long time i really worried about him as an adult i thought the world is just not gonna know like understand him it's not oh see now i could cry like they aren't gonna um like how will he how will he do this as a grown man like um, and I, I think I see it and I think he's like, he's going to be okay. <laughs> like he, he can do this. And, um, you, I almost feel bad. My husband and I both have said this have, when we first started thinking it's just too much. He's not going to handle it. And he has just proved us wrong at every turn and huh. continues to do. And it's just, I think we just feel so proud of him. <laughs> That's a mom named Alexis in New England. If you're interested in checking out Dr. Leibowitz's book, it's called Breaking Free of Child Anxiety and OCD, a scientifically proven program for parents. And thanks again to my neighbor, Mike, for letting me take our private deck chat public on the podcast. Death, Sex, and Money is a listener-supported production of WNYC Studios in New York. This episode was produced by Zoe Azule. The rest of our team is Liliana Maria Percy Ruiz, Afi Yellow Duke, Lindsay Foster Thomas, and Andrew Dunn. Our intern is Christian Reedy. The Reverend John Delore and Steve Lewis wrote our theme music. I'm on Instagram at Anna Sale Picks, that's P I C S, and the show is at Death Sex Money on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Thank you to Lillian Harris and Falmouth, Maine for being a member of Death, Sex, and Money and supporting us with a monthly donation. Join Lillian and support what we do here by going to deathsexmoney.org slash donate. Alexis also told me that as a self-identified people pleaser, it has been helpful to learn about supportive statements and to think about using them on other grown-ups to remind them of what they can handle on their own without her stepping in. Um, I've definitely thought. <laughs> um, <laughs> no, but I've definitely thought of like, you're like, you, you got this, sister. You know, like, you can do it. 
I'm Anna Sale, and this is Death, Sex, and Money from WNYC. Step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm going to make him an offer he can't refuse. With family, cannolis, and spins mean everything. Now, you want to get mixed up in the family business. Introducing The Godfather at ChompaCasino.com. Test your luck in the shadowy world of the Godfather slot. Someday, I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play the Godfather, now at ChumpaCasino.com. Welcome to the family. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply.